Welcome to our Eval Edge podcast series. The topic of our 10th episode is assessing private capital mobilisation approaches of multilateral development banks and development finance institutions. You will hear these described by their acronyms of MDBs and DFIs during this podcast. And also be aware that private capital mobilisation is often abbreviated to PCM. And you might also hear emerging and developing economies abbreviated to EMDEs. To guide us through this important and fascinating territory with me, I have Jose Carbajo Martinez, until recently Director for the Financial, Private Sector and Sustainable Development Department in the Independent Evaluation Group, the IEG of the World Bank Group. Jose leads the private sector evaluation thematic working group of the European Evaluation Society. I'm also very pleased to introduce another colleague who has worked with Jose in the IEG. Raghavan Narayanan is senior evaluation officer and task team leader of the IEG's recent evaluation of the World Bank Group's instruments and platforms leveraged to attract third-party capital to development programs and projects. Jose and Raghavan will share their insights around the evaluation challenges in assessing the contribution of private capital mobilisation approaches of the MDBs and DFIs. Their insights and lessons are based on IEG's recent evaluation experience on the subject. We're also joined by Eval Edge member and fellow evaluation activist, Valentine Gandhi, who we'll hear from shortly. First, I'd like to ask Jose, for the benefit of our wider EES audience, what is private capital mobilization and why is it relevant for development today? What is the topic? Why is the topic receiving so much attention? And what motivated the IEG's report? Thank you, Tom, and thank you for this nice introduction to a very, very relevant topic. Let me try and uh, you know, decipher, as it were, the concept. In a broad sense, PCM is the activity involved in attracting and committing private capital to support development goals. Now, it's known that private capital is mobilized through a variety of financing instruments and platforms. You know, it can be based on debt, equity, bonds, for example. And uh, the important link here with MDBs and DFIs is that given their institutional mandates and experience working in EMDEs, they, these institutions, can play an important role uh, attracting private capital. So that's the broad, as it were, uh, you know, sense or, or, or concept of PCM. Now, without getting too technical, however, being a bit more specific, PCM relates to the financing that is raised uh, actively and directly through the involvement of the NDBs on the one hand, but also indirectly in connection with the projects uh, and program activity. Essentially, what happens is that the NDBs, the DFIs, act uh, as an intermediary. An intermediary that does two things. On the one hand, it sources development projects, and on the other hand, also sources capital to fund them outside of what it is basically their public capital available in its balance sheet. Remember, NDBs are taxpayer-funded institutions. So here we're talking about, you know, attracting private capital over and above that public capital. The bottom line, Tom, is that PCM can potentially channel savings and other sectors to other sectors that typically uh, don't attract private capital. 
Mm, thank you. That's very clear. Why do you think there's so much more interest now? Well, a variety of reasons. Let me start by saying that PCM has been happening for decades. So, so from that point of view, it's not new. But, but let's say there is a renewed interest in PCM at a scale. And I want to emphasize the word at a scale. And this is due to three interrelated factors, all of them linked to global development priorities. First of all, is the global development agenda reflected in the well-known 2030 Sustainable Development Goals. People uh, acknowledge, it's widely acknowledged now that since the 2015 Addis Ababa Conference on Development Finance, people understand the public sources of capital are never going to be enough to meet the SDG objectives. Especially now that, you know, there is a, 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 the sovereign debt position of many countries in emerging markets and developing economies is, is rather stretched. Uh, a, a second related factor is the fact that, you know, there is an added urgency caused by the COVID-19 a crisis and its impacts. This has exacerbated the debt imbalances I was mentioning right now and the impact on lives, livelihoods, and you know, much restricted domestic resource mobilization. And third and last, Tom, we have challenges related to the climate change and the clean energy transition worldwide. This has been quite manifest in the recent COP26 meetings in Glasgow, where the substantial financing pledges made recently there um, clearly indicates that there is a need to mobilize uh, very large sums of climate capital. So this is an important area. All in all, there are uh, these three factors, SDG, COVID-19, climate change, uh, and they reflect why private capital is such a key ingredient in the financing efforts to build back better. Thanks, that's, that's really interesting. Um, I know that Val, you've got a couple of questions that you would also like to ask. Can I hand over to you? Yes, thank you, Tom. Jose, thank you for that introductory note. It was quite enlightening. I mean, several donors have been kind of dabbling with uh, PCM and uh, in, even in Indonesia, for instance, and other things. There are talks of using blockchain for PCM and so, so on and so forth. So it's uh, I think this podcast is timely to get some light on it. So would you kindly let us know or let us let our listeners know what motivated the PCM report to be published? Thank you, Val. Uh, very relevant question. As I mentioned before, PCM is not new. I mean, the World Bank Group has been using PCM principles for several decades with instruments that go back to the 1960s. Uh, for example, the IFC, which is the private sector arm of the World Bank, you know, started getting co-financing through uh, syndicating uh, to commercial banks. This is what they call the B-Loan program, which uh, basically consists of these commercial banks taking a portion of the IFC loan on their books. Just so that the audience understand, the, the, the IFC does three things in this example. One is it fronts the transaction. Number two, it conducts the due diligence. And number three, manages the relationship with the, with the client. And so the, this syndicate of commercial banks that are attracted are mobilized, in other words, uh, ensure that they, they take part in achieving the financial and development objectives. Now, so, so PCM is not new. Now, the motivation, your question, the motivation to assess PCM and efforts, perhaps better understood from the perspective of three key stakeholders of the World Bank Group, shareholders, management and country clients and, and development partners. From the shareholders' perspective, the board of the World Bank Group was interested to find out really how and to what extent these PCM instruments and platforms are really leading to more capital flows to the client countries and, and to what extent this additional private capital is leading to positive development outcomes. So that, that was important for them also to understand if this can be a scale up. Second, from the management perspective, 
many of you know, if not all of you, that the World Bank Group is, is one of the biggest PCM operators. And nearly $10 billion have been mobilized, for example, just by the IFC uh, PCM platforms, and over $40 billion collectively in the recent in the recent 10-year period. Now, there is, an, there is a substantial amount of resources allocated to these efforts, you know, planning, staffing, client engagement, etc. So it's important to understand whether this uh, allocation of resources are, are bearing fruit. Uh, and therefore, it was important to do the exercise to draw lessons of experience so that they can be adapted and incorporated in future approaches. And finally, from the clients and partners, not only just current partners, but also future potential ones, from the perspective of those clients and partners, there, are, there is an intellectual curiosity to understand how is it that they can participate in emerging markets as financiers, not just as beneficiaries. So it was important to, and relevant to understand, you know, what, what, what is it that was working the PCA platforms and why. Thank you, Jose. That's, uh, that sounds pretty exciting, and I'm sure our listeners would like to read the report. But would you be able to highlight some of the main findings of the evaluation exercise briefly? With, with pleasure. Well, um, of course, I strongly encourage the audience of this podcast to download and read the report. It is rich in its analysis, its methods and findings. But let me summarize uh, three of its key findings. Number one, the World Bank and the IFC have made firm commitments to their shareholders about raising PCM levels. And this was committed in a recent capital increase package. Now, it turns out that the IFC is meeting the targets, but the World Bank is not, at least not for now. And therefore, it needs to scale up its work through the, its programs and projects. Um, you know, the good thing is that there are several untapped opportunities for the bank. Uh, advisory work by the bank's treasury, the work with PPPs, i.e. private-public partnerships, the work with guarantees, to name a few. So that's one key finding. The second one is the issue of relevance. In other words, and this is a concept, a well-known OECD criteria understood by evaluators, the extent in which the bank group is doing the right things in the PCM space here. The findings are quite positive from the client beneficiary perspective. However, the report also finds that the expectations of institutional investors, for example, pension funds, insurance companies interested in, in, in investing in EMDGs are not fully met yet by the existing instruments and platform. And therefore, there is a scope for experimentation and further design. Last, the effectiveness of these approaches, in other words, the extent in which projects involving PCN achieve the development outcomes. Now, Exante, i.e. at the time of financial close of this project, there is a there is there are different perspectives. There's a retail project by project approach with PCM instrument. And then there is also a wholesale approach through which PCM platforms can crowd in the three institutions, the bank, the IFC, and MIGA, the multilateral investment guarantee agency, in addition to other MDBs and DFIs. So, you know, we, we found in the report that when the three institutions of the World Bank Group work together or with other MDBs or, or, or DFI partners, the development outcomes are better. That is quite promising because it says that there is potential for scaling up and, of course, potential to achieve greater demonstration effects. Thank you, Jose. Over to you, Tom. Thank you, Val. Thank you, Jose. This is very interesting, uh, finding out how the blended finance has been used by development players like IFC for many years to mobilize additional private sector investments to achieve the SDGs. To find out more details about the evaluation findings, challenges and constraints experienced when mobilizing private capital, the listeners of our broadcast are warmly encouraged to download IEG's report and or read its blog. And we are also sharing their links on our webpage.
Now, I would like to turn to the main author of the report, Raghavan, to discuss the challenges for evaluators in treating a complex topic such as PCM that is not really in the social sciences of economics disciplines and what methods uh, he's found are useful. First, could you share with us the challenges for evaluators, especially in NDBs and DFIs, in studying PSM approaches and also with a corporate lens? Thank you. Thank you for having me in this podcast. Uh, thanks to you, Tom, AES colleagues, and I'm excited to join Jose in this discussion today. Now, uh, PCM touches upon directly and tangentially to many related studies uh, that uh, the World Bank Group and IEG has conducted. For example, capital markets development, public-private partnerships, trade finance interventions, and guarantee programs. Uh, many of the MDBs and DFIs have active programs in these areas, and PCM can link to these. So from an evaluator's perspective, uh, one thing to note is uh, PCM challenges us from a scoping perspective and a methodology perspective. And it reminds me of this very interesting quote from uh, John Keynes, one of the uh, brains behind the Bretton Woods Institution. Right? Successful investing, he says, is anticipating the anticipations of others. So it's a very relevant uh, quote from a PCM perspective because uh, when we look at the definitions of PCMs, the treatments of joint interventions between MDBs and the catalytic activities uh, that uh, institutions like the World Bank Group have been conducting before PCM starts to uh, be activated in projects, uh, the definitions itself can be a challenge. Uh, different institutions define it differently. Uh, and secondly, I would say the accounting principles that are used to generate PCM volume uh, need not be fully aligned across these institutions. And third, the timing issue with PCM and the treatment of financing at the country level, at the project level, and the treatment of additional financing from either the same organizations or other organizations can be very, very complicated. Lastly, scoping challenges involves understanding what instruments can mobilize private capital and separating out those that are simply catalytic. So to summarize, I think scoping uh, at an ex-ante design stage uh, can be very, very challenging. Mm, thank you. That's, that's very interesting on the scoping challenge. And, and what about the methodological challenges? So because the evaluation uh, is expected to study the effectiveness of instruments and platforms, you know, the retail and the wholesale model that Jose talked about, several methodological challenges arise in evaluating a topic like PCM. First, are we really studying the development outcomes as we would normally do with traditional exposed evaluations? Given that financing is fungible in these projects, should the type of financing matter, whether an investment is done through an investment uh, loan, whether it's done through an equity investment, uh, whether a risk sharing facility in place, so does the type of financing matter? So that becomes a methodological issue to tackle. Third, are we going to study these instruments and platforms from an ex-ante perspective? Designing a theory of change that captures these PCM approaches and instruments at these three levels that we talked about, at the project level, at the country level, at the instrument level, and to a certain degree at the corporate level, can be a very, very significant challenge. For large institutions, like the ones where Jose and I are at the World Bank Group, there are different types of mobilization. 
different types of financing and different instruments. So designing a methodology to benchmark performance for a certain type of instruments and platform and then aggregating it across these various instruments and typologies has never been attempted before uh, from what we understand and in my experience. To summarize, this report is the first systematic evaluation of a large set of instruments and platforms that we know of that studies these instruments both from an ex-ante perspective and also from a project development outcome perspective that we know of. Thanks so much. I know that Val has got some further questions that he would like to ask. Over to you, Val. Thanks, Tom. That's what we'd like to hear at the Eval Edge uh, podcast, Raghavan. We, we, we really explore cutting edge evaluation methods that can be used and tested. And particularly things like PCM sounds very complex. It may not be just in the straightforward accountability and linear kind of evaluation methods. And it, from what you described, it looks like a complex set of methodologies. And so perhaps you can help the audience understand uh, from a design and implementation of the evaluation point of view, uh, what worked well and what didn't perhaps uh, in terms of uh, in, the in the design and implementation. Yeah, sure, well, uh, there are two things that would stand out in my opinion. First is the people and second is the process. When we design evaluations for a complex topic like this. First is on the people side, um, you know, most of the audience knows this very well. You know, we complement traditional evaluators from the social sciences and economics disciplines with folks who have a good experience in the banking financial sector. So the sector experts uh, need to be part of the team. Second, we need to have uh, consultants and expertise and staff who have the institutional background, the corporate aspects, because there is a very uh, interesting conundrum uh, from a design perspective, if our institutions are designing PCM from a retail perspective or a wholesale perspective, what were the thought process at the stage? And we need to reflect that in our evaluations. So having a team of people with the right skill sets is, is paramount. Second, from a technical perspective, we, the traditional evaluation sciences, uh, the theory of change approach uh, is, is useful, but it's not sufficient for studying PCM. So this uh, methodological framework that we use treats the effectiveness of instruments in a slightly different set of criteria. So we study the instruments in terms of their risks, in terms of their rewards, not just to our institutions, but also to the co-financing parties, uh, to the institutional investors who are participating in these platforms, to what extent they align with client needs, but that's not sufficient. We need to understand the alignment with the investor needs. And we used a technique called performance benchmarking where we studied if the investors and co-financiers, for example, if they had alternative ways to invest, if they did not invest through the multilateral institutions uh, for PCM approaches, or in our case, if they didn't come to World Bank Group as an intermediary to get exposure to emerging markets, what would they have done with that capital? How much returns would they have made? What kind of risks would they have taken? So studying a public market equivalent approach through benchmarking was, was very, very critical in a study like PCM, and which is why I said earlier, we needed people who have some banking experience. Uh, last point I would say is studying mobilization that were uh, set up through loan programs or, or debt investments again require a very different approach from studying equity mobilization. So even within the PCM approaches, uh, 
based on the uh, investment typology, we needed to create different sets of benchmarking exercises. And that made the methodological framework uh, even more complicated, but rewarding. Evaluating the effectiveness of guarantee instruments again requires a very different uh, thought process from a benchmarking perspective. That's, uh, that sounds pretty awesome, Raghavan. Could you tell us a little bit more on how did you capture the multiple perspectives, I mean, in terms of the tools and, uh, and methodology, I mean, in terms of how did you physically capture them and how did you arrive at this, you know, analysis and judgments on these instruments? Sure, well, uh, triangulation was uh, the name of the game for us. I mean, we complemented our desk reviews, our benchmarking exercises, uh, the financial wizardry in our methodological framework. We supplemented those with a mix of institutional investor surveys, key informant interviews, country case studies, and additional desk assessments. I want to remind our audience that we had to study this at three levels, the effectiveness of these PCM instruments at the project level, where we study the development outcomes, at the country level, to see what is the untapped capacity at the country level to attract more private capital, and lastly, at the corporate level, which is our three World Bank group institutions, to what extent they are capable and they had the necessary uh, infrastructure in place to attract PCM at scale as an intermediary. So our unique methodological framework, um, you know, in addition to doing the surveys and interviews, uh, we also had to study the country capacity, how much of the private capital flows uh, can come into uh, our client countries given a certain level of inputs that they have. Uh, to give you some examples, the regulatory capacity at the country level, the financial market sophistication at the country level, these are important inputs uh, that need to be in place for attracting private capital at scale again. Thanks, Raghu. And the last question for me before I hand over to Tom. I mean, there seems to be a lot of careful planning and uh, very clearly thought out ways to collect data and, and the frameworks. But despite that, did you face any practical challenges? Would you enlighten the audience with how, what did you face and how did you handle them? Definitely. I mean, I will focus a bit more on the internal challenges uh, at this time. Given the complexity of, of the topic that, you know, it's, it's a highly specialized area that not many macroeconomists would be familiar with, uh, the understanding of the different financing instruments, the PCM instruments and platforms, it was very, very concentrated in a few individuals, some small groups in, say, the World Bank Treasury or within the IFC risks team. So the knowledge of these PCM instruments uh, was not widely understood. So unless this knowledge spills over into the day-to-day -day operations of the multilaterals and DFIs, into the project level and at the country level, scaling a PCM uh, will remain a key challenge. So one of the points that we made in the report is, what are the implications from an internal perspective, uh, not just for the World Bank group, but in fact for the wider MDB community, and I've been making this point at several events in the last year, uh, what are the implications for MDB's ability to attract very sophisticated investors, institutional investors, sovereign wealth funds, etc., uh, that may or may not necessarily view development goals uh, as the primary cause? You know, they still want their want to have their returns, and, and impacts are nice to have. So, putting these concepts together and uh, mainstreaming the knowledge of PCM and operations remains a challenge not just for the World Bank group, but for the MDPs as well. Thanks, Raghavan. Back to you, Tom. 
Thanks, Raghavan. That's a fascinating account of the challenges and the way that you overcome those challenges in getting to the report. Can you perhaps just say a little bit about the what, what, what do you think are the unique features of, of this evaluation report? Thanks, Tom. The report is unique because it was the first time uh, an evaluation team had looked at the financing instruments in a very comprehensive way. And on top of that, we had the complexity of studying financing platforms, private equity funds, private debts funds. These topics are, are not in the mainstream evaluation community discussions. Uh, they are starting to come up in the methodological debates taking place at the OECD and others in terms of the debates on the definitions and measurements of blended finance. So in some ways, this evaluation kind of set the stage for several ongoing conversations that need to happen in the context of COVID, climate, and conflicts that Jose mentioned earlier. Now, the second point I would make is the innovative methods that this evaluation deployed. Uh, many of these benchmarking exercises are, again, not mainstreamed in the evaluation business. They have not been conducted before. Uh, to quote uh, one particular example, the concept of PME, public market equivalence, uh, which uh, can be oversimplified in, uh, to studying the opportunity cost of capital for investors and co-financiers and reflecting those in the instrument's effectiveness. That's never been done before. And finally, the methodology of using efficient frontier analysis to study the country's readiness to attract private capital flows given a certain level of inputs uh, and the initial conditions that they are in. Uh, that was also a very innovative method we deployed to study PCM at the country level. Absolutely fascinating. I suppose the, the final question really is what, what evidence is there that things are being done differently as a result of your evaluation? Yes, yeah, so one of the things we are proud of since deploying this report and, and we've been socializing it internally and externally, the, uh, the best uh, evidence of you know, things being done differently is uh, you know, having PCM, the, the lingo of PCM being uh, part of the World Bank Group nomenclature since 2021. Uh, that for us was a big win because uh, until then, the, the terminology of PCM did not exist in the World Bank Group. Now, uh, more concrete uh, evidence is um, as recent as uh, September, the World Bank Group president uh, made an explicit commitment to using PCM approaches as part of his uh, central theme part of the central vision of the World Bank Group uh, in intervening towards the green, resilient, and inclusive development uh, in the coming years uh, in a post-COVID world. And in his recent presentations to the Board of Governors, uh, the managing director uh, has committed to setting up a core PCM team in the MD's front office and to mainstream PCM sector by sector. So we've already seen PCM very actively used in the energy sector, in the extractive sector. Uh, we are starting to see it happening in agribusiness, in, in water and sanitation, and so on. So there is PCM discussions happening at the sector level, which is a big win for us in the last 12 months. The other point I would make is the conversations that we've been having with the UN networks and some of the country teams to mainstream PCM approaches. Uh, for example, our PCM report was shared uh, at the UNSDG network in April. Uh, I presented at the panel uh, with the Global Investors for Sustainable Development, which was a very rewarding conversation. We were able to hear the other side of PCM from the investor's perspective, and there was a lot of alignment with what our report was saying and what these investors uh, were uh, asking for. 
One other point I would make is, you know, I would encourage uh, our audience, both from the evaluation, you know, practice and, and the bankers in the audience to think of um, PCM as an umbrella concept, a chapeau concept. Uh, it can also be thought of as a strategic investment framework for MDBs and DFIs as they um, progress towards solving our climate crisis. Uh, it can link with COP26 commitments. We've heard a lot about climate finance through private capital. So PCM is at the heart of this agenda. And lastly, it also allows uh, MDBs and DFIs to think differently about different pools of capital, some coming from the donor community, the donor capital, but also uh, not to forget the philanthropic capital that exists out there. Uh, we've heard a lot about impact investing that also links tangentially to PCM efforts. And Jose, maybe a last word from, from you. Thank you, Tom. So nothing much to add to the remarks made by Ragaban. Um, this is a very exciting time for PCM because it's a bit of a paradox. On the one hand, as I mentioned at the start, PCM has been going on for a while, but the reason that there is so much interest now is because of the need to scale it up. So whether the NDBs and DFIs can uh, articulate, uh, design and develop new channels to attract private capital flows through the platform remains work in progress, as far as I am concerned. And therefore, an open question, a challenging one, an exciting one from an intellectual point of view. So I think that this is a space linked to many other spaces, as Raghavan was just pointing out. And studying further PCM efforts of the NDBs, it is something that is an agenda that is, is here to stay and to be further developed. Thank you again. Thank you. This has been a completely fascinating podcast, uh, and I've learned so much, and I'm sure our listeners have too. I would like to thank Val, my fellow Eval Edge activist, for his questions and participation. Uh, particularly to thank Raghavan and Jose, from whom we've learned so much today. And above all, perhaps, to thank our listeners, uh, without whom this would be purposeless. And invite you, and indeed encourage you, all to go to our website and look at the links to the report that you will find there, and to follow up this fascinating discussion by reading those reports and reflecting further. So thanks to everyone involved for such an interesting session. 